Scripture reading for today is 1 Peter 2, 4 and, or, yeah, 4 and 5, also uh, 13 through 17. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Good morning, church. This morning we're going to take a break from our regularly scheduled sermon plan where we have been preaching ahead as you have been doing the readings through uh, the Old Testament. We want to continue to encourage you to be doing that, uh, looking into the Old Testament as we see the story unfold from the time of creation until the coming of Christ. That's where we're going to land at the end of this year. But this morning we're going to take a break from that and address a question that seems to be, uh, rightly so, bubbling at the surface of the minds of many Christians. Uh, this question was actually asked to be a part of our um, question and answer night on May, in May on Sunday nights. Um, and we decided that the question was important enough for us to pause on a Sunday night and bring it to a Sunday morning to address the uh, whole congregation together. And the question is this, um, how should Christians engage with and interact with the culture around us? How should we do that? You know, in light of recent changes um, in constitutional law, in light of the recent changes of our culture, uh, this question is becoming more and more um, focused upon Christians on how are we to engage with the world in which we live, the culture in which we exist. Uh, let me clarify one thing and then we'll get into our message, and that's this. I am not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so I don't have any expertise in that field. Um, I am not a social activist. I, I'm a minister. I'm a preacher. And so the angle at which we have to approach this subject this morning is not evaluating um, how constitutional law takes place or even how to organize ourselves in an operation outside of the church. What we're going to do today is talk about how we can be guided by Scripture to come under the power of God, to be the people of God in the world today. That's what we're going to do. Our text begins, as Josh read for us, with a vivid description of the people of God. This sentence in uh, verse 4 and 5 is so rich. It's parabolic. You know, he's using a parable there that we're going to look into, and it's full. It's so saturated with meaning and depth that you've got to take your time to work through each one of these thoughts to understand what he's saying about the people of God. You see, each of these descriptions doesn't just speak about God's people, it gives a deeper meaning to who and what we are, but it also reveals the distinctiveness of God's people. 
Notice he says that we are living stones. And we're being built into two things. These stones that he's talking about that are now animated, that are now brought to life through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that are now what we would call as Christians. Individual, each one of us have become stones that were once dead and now alive. He says these stones are being brought together, being built together into two things. The first thing is he says we're being built into a spiritual house. Maybe a temple would be a better word that the translators could use. And this is not just a common house or a common use house. This isn't just a, you know, we see several houses along a street. A temple was a dedicated and distinct building for a distinct and dedicated purpose. It stood out and there was only one. The second thing he says is that we're not only a spiritual house, but we're a holy priesthood. So we are a distinct house with a specific purpose, but we're also a distinct people with a specific purpose. The priests were the ones who could offer the sacrifices to God and they could facilitate the worship of the people. And so you and I, as living stones now animated in a life full of death and decay and morality that's falling apart, are now living stones being built together as a distinct spiritual house and a distinct holy people. Now, anytime a distinct, let's call it a we, comes together, whether it's a church, a family, a team, a community, anytime a we is formed, naturally there is a them that is created in response. This is just a natural response that happens. Anytime a we is created, there is always going to be a them. That doesn't always have to be a bad thing. That's just what it is. If you go to a game and you watch um, maybe a football game or a basketball game, when there's a we that's created that wears a certain color jersey, there's naturally going to be a them that's created. This is true in your family. You have a we that share maybe a last name or share a DNA that is a we, and then there's those that aren't the we. And so we have that for us today. There's a we that's been created, a spiritual house, the people of God, a holy priesthood. And there's a them. And this creates a universal question across any we-them spectrum. Is how do we interact with them? That's a natural question. How does your family interact with people that aren't your family? How do people in a certain social class interact with people that are not in that social class? How do people in a certain race demographic interact with those that are not in that race demographic? Anytime there's a we, you have to ask the question, how do we engage with them? That's a very fair question. And so this morning, I want to answer just two questions. Who is the them? Okay, we've got to make sense of that. If we're the living stone, who's the them? And then how do we engage with them? Simple enough, right? Let's try to do that together. Who's the them? I think the word that most currently in our modern vocabulary that is associated with a them is the word culture. Uh, the Bible would use the word the world. Now, that word the world, or that phrase the world, has become so um, entrenched and connected with religion that sometimes it has become a shortcut for us to say the world, but we don't always really understand what we mean when we say the world. You know, we say, like, the world happens a lot in church. We speak of that, but we've said it so often that we sometimes forget to actually define what it means. Now, in the Bible, the word the world 
is used in two different ways. Jesus would say this in John 3.16, that God so loved the world. But then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John there says, do not love the world. Interesting, right? Jesus says, God so loved the world, He gave His Son. Then John would later say to the apostle, but don't love the world. That word world is used in two ways, but they're tied together. The way that Jesus was using the word world in John 3.16 was talking about humanity, the people. God has so loved the people of the world that He would give His Son so that all people who would believe in Him could come back and enjoy that fellowship with God. And then you go to 1 John chapter 2, and what he says there is, don't love the world, meaning the distinct belief system of the world. The word world there is, is like the cosmos, the system of how the world works. And what he's talking about is the collective belief system of how the world is supposed to work. Don't love that system because it's not going to lead you to life. Do you see the difference? There are people that we are to love, but there's a system that we are not to love. And so that word culture speaks to that. Culture is just the collective beliefs of a society. Basically, uh, you know, we have American culture or Western culture and there's Eastern culture and there's different uh, places of the world that have culture. And what culture means, it is the collective belief of a gathered society. The system on which that society values and runs, the, the collective values, the priorities, the, the way that the world works in that place. T.S. Eliot, a, a turn-of-the-century philosopher in the 1900s, said, the culture is the incarnation of the people's religion. Now, don't think of religion immediately as like, you know, sacraments and church. And so what he was saying was that culture is just the incarnation, the manifestation of what the collective people worship and love. And that's what the culture is. And so... As we think about the collective beliefs of our society that we live in, we have to ask ourselves, how do we as Christians engage with the people and the beliefs of our society, especially as they change? Well, thankfully, our text is going to explain that for us this morning. So anyone who's spent any time reflecting on this question of how are Christians supposed to engage the culture Anyone who's ever really spent time reflecting on that question knows that the answer is not simple. The answer is not just a, a clean, cut and dry, black and white, this is simple, this is easy, this is how Christians are to engage the world. In fact, if anyone spends any time on Facebook in the last like three weeks, they'll realize that the varying opinions on how Christians should behave in regards to the world is vast. It's, it's way out there as far as how opinions abound and answers circulate. But there is a tension, a tension, as in all great truths of God, there's a tension that exists that requires the strength of Christians to hold that tension up as we understand how to relate with the culture. See, first of all, Scripture will warn you against the contamination of the world. Scripture does that often. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the world. 2 Corinthians 6, don't be bound together with unbelievers. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive with philosophy and empty deception. 
James 1.27 finishes by saying that you and I ought to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. That, that's one side of the tension, okay? That Scripture is saying, be cautious. Do not be contaminated with the system of beliefs that is against the teaching of God. Be careful about that. But on the other hand, Scripture says that we are commissioned to transform the world. Matthew 5 says that we are the light of the world. And our light is to shine in a way that leads other people who don't currently glorify God to finally glorify God. Matthew 28, Jesus says that we're supposed to go into all the nations and make disciples. John 17, when Jesus was praying before His crucifixion for us, He said, I don't ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but just keep them from the evil one. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors into what? The culture, the world. And Colossians 4 and verse 5 says that you and I as Christians are to conduct ourselves with all wisdom towards those who are outside. That means that people outside of us have to actually see us. We have to engage and interact with them. That's what he's meaning. So do you see the tension that's being set up? On one hand, Scripture warns you carefully, do not be contaminated by the world. But on the other hand, Scripture commissions you to transform the world, to change it. You see, these two commands represent the extremes by which Christians sometimes fall into, or even churches fall into, in error when they go to one or the other and forget the other. Let me try to explain it. On one extreme... Uh, Let's go with the first, you know, the warning of contamination. You have kind of a separatist mentality that happens in Christians and in churches. Um, This is uh, maybe most oftentimes associated with a conservative type of group, but I don't think that label is always fair, but but just so you understand where we're positioning this. It's really a separatist mentality. And that mentality is more like it's us versus them. It's, It's the church, us, and we're completely against them. Those people out there have ruined everything, and if we could just get rid of those people, then we would be fine. That's the kind of mentality that stirs within the separatist Christian uh, attitude and mentality. Um, And that's not healthy because we forget that, hey, we were once them. (laughs) We were out there. That was us. Okay, so their behavior oftentimes looks like this. Now, I'm giving you this to do an inventory on yourself to see if this is kind of where you fall because we lean one way or the other. The behavior is oftentimes to withdraw from the world in a defeated sort of sense. We hide in church buildings and we hang out until this whole thing is over. Let's just hide inside of our church buildings and, you know, bunker down and then someday when Christ comes back, all this will be over and I won't have to worry about that nasty old dirty world anymore. That's kind of the defeatist mentality. Now, the other side of that is the triumphalist mentality that's like, we need to dominate these people, rise up and crush them. This is kind of came out of the Puritan movement where they believed that if they could just control parliament and they could control the government, that they would just run the world and they could force Christianity upon their world if they could just control the legislation. That's kind of the behavior. Now, the strength of this mentality, before we get to the weakness, is this that these people oftentimes stand in stark opposition and in a prophetic voice oppose culture, which is necessary. 
The Christian voice is to be distinct against the message of culture. It needs to be that way. And these people are often the ones that are willing to do that, that have the strength and the backbone to say, what you're saying and what you're proclaiming, the way that you're leading people is not healthy, and I resist that. But through fear, through um, frustration, through anger, they oftentimes withdraw out of the world where they no longer become an influence. And the weakness of this mentality is this, that our anger towards sin most often becomes hatred towards sinners. That's where this becomes a problem. When this tension is not held and we just drift to one side of separation, that we need to not be contaminated by the world, but we forget the commission to change the world, we oftentimes draw into ourselves and our anger towards sin becomes a hatred towards sinners. And that's not right. Let's look at the other extreme. The other extreme is not separationist, but assimilation. This would be most oftentimes associated with more of a liberal mentality towards social ideas. The mentality is not us versus them, but the mentality is us is them. No big deal. The beauty of Christ is in all things. The Creator God is in everything. And so we ought to just enjoy the good that is in all people and not really worry about everything else. Just let the bad go, and there's good in everybody, so let's just enjoy the good. That's assimilation. Now, their behavior oftentimes looks like this. They submit their understanding of Jesus Christ and their convictions about truth to the cultural norms. So the image of Jesus and the message of the gospel is constantly being shifted, is constantly changing, is constantly kind of being adapted to be palatable to the culture in which we live. That it always just kind of, yeah, 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 this thing, idea of, of love, or this idea of peace, or this idea of freedom. Yeah, that's what the gospel says. What you're saying is the gospel. And it has no opposition. The strength of this movement is often this that they're woven into culture and they're in position of influence. These people go into the world. They're there. They're, they're in, on the front lines. They're doing things. They're involved in different places. They're in management or politics or in the, the professions. But the weakness is their love towards sinners becomes indifference towards the sin. Do you see the difference? You see, on one hand, the separatists have an anger towards sin, which is healthy, but that becomes hatred towards sinners. On the other side, the assimilationists, those that assimilate into culture, their love towards people transfers into indifference towards their sin. And both of those are not healthy. So these two groups are the tensions that exist throughout all of Scripture. You know there's always a tension in Scripture. It's always this thing that requires our strength, our contemplation, our reflection to think about. The tension between justice and mercy is always there. What is God going to do? Is He going to be just or merciful? The tension between law but grace. The tension between unconditional love but conditional salvation. Those tensions are always there. And as it always is with God, the answer is not one or the other. It's not law or grace. It's not justice or mercy. There's always a beautiful third way with God. And with God, it's unconditional love and conditional salvation. With God, it is grace that is so comprehensive that it would give us instruction on how to live in law. 
With God, it is mercy that is so full that it would still uphold its justice. That's what the cross was. Jesus Christ took the full justice of God and gave to you the full mercy of God. You see, God doesn't eliminate one for the other. He upholds the both, and it takes an incredible amount of strength. And so for us, as we think about engaging the culture, it's not abstinence from the world, and it's not just assimilation of the world. It's an abstinence that is so strong that its voice finally becomes distinct and clear, different than the message of the world. You see, it's not us versus them, and it's not us is them. It's us within them, changing them, transforming them. Look at our text. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Okay, sounds good. What are we to do? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see, the first thing He says that we're to do is to be people that actually proclaim light in the midst of darkness. And so to those who lean towards more of the assimilation side, that I see the gospel woven in every part of life, so let's stop being so grumpy with people and let's just go with the flow of culture. He says, no, no, no. You're a holy people, distinct. You're a royal priesthood, set apart. And you are to speak of the marvelous nature of God, the light of God, in stark contrast to the darkness. You are to speak. You are to proclaim that constantly. Now look in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, he's giving us instruction to both proclaim the message of the light of the gospel, and to abstain from the world. Both separation from the world, but proclamation of the gospel is what's called upon us as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God. These two principles, to be in the culture, but to to speak clearly about the wonderful work of God, to be in the culture, but to keep ourselves pure from the fleshly lusts that surround us and maintain an honorable lifestyle is the tension that God calls upon Christians to be who we are, but to be in the world, transforming the world. You see, these two principles were held together by God Himself. The very first time sin showed up in the world, you remember when it showed up? In Genesis chapter 3, Chapter 2, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. There's beauty in the world. There's no sin. There's peace. There's tranquility. And they sin, and all of a sudden there's problems. And the moment sin shows up, what does God do? Our perfect example, what does He do? Well, the Bible says He comes down into the garden in the cool of the day. He's in their world. He's walking around in the places they walk around. He's in the forest where they are in the forest. He's in the world with them. And when He comes to them, but then what does He do? When He finally finds Adam and Eve and He calls out and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam comes and Adam and Eve are before God. What does He do? Does He assimilate and say, I understand you're just pursuing joy. That's fine. Joy's great. He opposes their behavior. You see, He's in their world, but He holds them accountable. 
that's when we found out how to deal with our culture. He came into their world, but he held them accountable. You see, when sin first came into the culture, our God came into a garden and held accountable mankind for their sins. And some 4,000 years later, God again would come into a garden to deal with sin. This time not to find us, but to lose Himself. And this time not to hold us accountable for our sin, but to take on our accountability for us. And as God Himself again, Emmanuel, entered our culture, our world, our belief system, He abstained from the darkness and He proclaimed the light. He did that for us. So how do we become people like that? How do we become people that don't just withdraw from the world out of fear and anger and hide in our bunker until this world's over? But how do we get the strength and the backbone to go into culture and oppose culture? The answer is in our text in verse 4 when he says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You see, the instruction is simple. He says that we're to come to Him. That means that we've got to draw near to Him, to come close to Jesus Christ. To come to Him means that you're coming requesting some benevolence, that you're coming asking for something, that you're drawing near to Him to look into Him, to see who He is. And He says we've got to come to Him in a certain way. You've got to see Him for who He is. And Peter says, come to Him as a rejected stone. A rejected stone. You see, Jesus experienced the ultimate amount of suffering at the hands of culture. And when culture was causing him to suffer, he didn't withdraw and say, forget you guys. But he didn't assimilate and say, never mind, I'm just kidding about my mission. He didn't do either of those. He stood in culture and he suffered at the hands of culture for the sake of giving culture life. You see, you know what both the separation and the assimilation have in common? They look like two totally different things, right? One is one way and the other is the other way. You know what they both have in common? They have the same seed, the same root, the same foundation. Both the separationist and the assimilationist want to avoid suffering. The separation wants to avoid suffering by withdrawing into the church building and hiding from that old and nasty world. I don't want to suffer for my faith, so I'm just going to be angry at them. The assimilationist also wants to avoid suffering by not confronting anyone. Jesus says, I came into culture and I resisted the darkness, proclaimed the light, and I suffered. And in absorbing that suffering, I gave the world life. And that's our example. He's the ultimate rejected stone. So you as a living stone coming to Him to come into culture, rejecting the darkness, proclaiming the light, and being willing to endure the suffering. See Him as the ultimate rejected one to give you strength and not fear being rejected by the culture. The second thing you got to do is see Him as a precious stone. A precious stone. Draw near to Jesus Christ until He becomes absolutely precious to you. Until you understand that His rejection, His suffering, and His death were at your hands. You were the culture. You were the sin. You were the hands that caused Him to experience so much grief, suffering, pain, and death. You were. And as you draw near to Him and think about the Gospel and meditate on the Gospel and realize that His suffering and death was for you, it creates in you not only a love for Him, but a love for those that would miss out on His love. 
And that gives you the power to go into the world and to love them and absorb the suffering for them. If he would suffer the ultimate injustice for you, it empowers you to return that ability to suffer for him. But finally, he says in verse 6, we've got to come to him as a rejected stone, a precious stone. But if you're going to come to him, he says, it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. You know what's important about this? You see, the cornerstone is, first of all, the foundation of the building. If you're going to come to Christ, he has to be the foundation of your life. You see, if you try to go out to culture and oppose culture, but you love things more than you love Christ, you're going to be annihilated and you're going to run home. You see, what suffering does for us is we go into culture with a desire and love for them, but a hatred for the sin, wanting to transform culture, is it's going to cause you to suffer. But what suffer does for you is that it burns away every temporal hope that you have and rises to the surface the only hope that will last, Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He'll teach you to build your life on Him, the one who will never change. But the second thing about a cornerstone that's interesting is that its shape determines the shape of every other stone. You see, when they would lay a cornerstone in this day for the building, every other stone would have to be chiseled to fit that cornerstone to be able to be in the building. They would reject stone after stone after stone. If they would come from the quarry after chiseling the stone and find that it doesn't line up to the cornerstone, that it doesn't fit the shape of the cornerstone, they would reject that stone. So if you want to have life, if you want to be built into this dwelling place where holy sacrifice can be offered to God, where you can come into the culture, transform the culture, suffer for the culture, and love the world that's there, You've got to not only come to him as the rejected stone, as the precious stone, but he's got to become your cornerstone, your foundation, and the very shape in which your entire life is cut. Draw near to him. Stare at him. Look at him. Learn of him. And as you do, you'll be shaped into his image and empowered to go into the culture to transform it. And if you're here today and the shape of Jesus Christ is something that you are not aligned to, something that you've maybe rejected yourself, something that you've resisted, seeing Him for who He is and helping you understand the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ is the purpose of the existence of this church, that you might come to know Jesus Christ and be shaped in His image. And so the offer is always available to you, but most certainly now you can come as we stand and sing.